Folks, this is Trust in the Process, a podcast with myself, Travis Fritz from Old Nation Brewing Company for brewers and folks interested in the uh, brewing industry and the misfits and great stories that uh, come out of it. Um, today, we have on the podcast um, Bart, with Dr. Bart Watson. He's a chief economist for the Brewers Association. Uh, the Brewers Association, of course, provides um, an immense amount of support for small brewers particularly, and those interested in the brewing profession or as a hobby even, um, and support us all with a great amount of data and data analysis, and also uh, technical quarterlies, which I've used for almost my entire career um, and have been frankly invaluable. So I am so excited to have uh, you on, Bart, and uh, and to get into some conversation about the last couple of years and and where, we, where you frankly think beer is headed and, um, all that kind of stuff. So welcome. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on. Great. Great. Um, so we, uh, we we spoke a little bit uh, before the podcast and I had said, I'm going to ask you some questions and then ask you again. Um, so that I don't mangle it, would you sort of tell folks uh, if there's anything you want to expand on from from how I introduced the BA, uh, what the mission is uh, and, and and how you all execute that mission? Yeah, you know, our mission is to promote and protect craft brewers, their beers, and the community of brewing enthusiasts. So, you know, pretty broad. Um, but within that, you know, we we do lobbying, you know, at the, the federal and increasingly state level. We provide resources for members. We provide stats and data. That's my role. And, and generally, you know, what we wake up every day and go to work thinking about is, you know, what's the highest value thing that we can do, you know, kind of collectively as an association that brewers can't do themselves. So, I think my role is a perfect example of that. You know, one brewer can't go around and collect the data from all the breweries around the country, but we can do that and then we can republish it. So, I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're working you know, on is how can we use the leverage of, you know, 9,000 breweries around the country to make it a better business environment for all 9,000. 9,000 breweries. I am always shocked by the number every year when it grows. Yeah, um, it's, it's pretty incredible. And it grew this year too, so. I mean, I, I truly remember maybe 15 years ago, people saying, you know, once it hits 3,000, that's it. That's saturation. Yeah, I think one of the, you know, I, I like occasionally looking at the, the kind of earliest stuff that I wrote when I started at the BA. And I think one of my first blog posts was it's not a bubble, you know, because people were at the time we were at 2000 and people were like, can we take 2500? Can we take 3000? Right. You know, I, I basically said, yeah, we can take that many because A, most breweries are really, really small. And and B, you know, we had comparative numbers at the time. There were lots of countries where it suggested that the U.S. could have, you know, I don't know if it, I thought it could have 10,000, but it certainly I thought it could have 5000. Right. Well, and this is a really maybe interesting topic to kind of start off with. So you've 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 seen this growth uh, from, let's say, 2000 to, to now 9000. And, um, you know, of course, having shared uh, both of us a little bit of skepticism early on about about what was happening and then how how did that growth happen and how has the market sustained itself in the context of craft beer, which has risen year to year? Um, pretty well until, you know, frankly, just recently. Um, 
but isn't really taking up that much space in terms of actual gallons of beer sold uh, in the United States compared to the larger brewers. So how how has that growth sustained itself and, and in what fashion? Yeah, I think the first place is that, you know, consumers themselves have shifted. So, you know, yes, people drank craft beer in 2010. But, you know, if you look at the, the stats today, more people drink craft beer. They drink more of it as a share of their, you know, beverage alcohol consumption. And so, I mean, we just had a real shift, you know, generationally, you know, people just drink more beer from small brewers than they did before. So, I mean, that's kind of the fundamental thing driving all of this. You know, the, I think the second big thing is that, you know, we've continued just to see a huge business model shift in what it means to be a brewery. You know, if you talked about a brewery 20 years ago, you meant a production brewery that was selling and distribution, you know, and, and there were a few brew pubs and were some other models, but, you know, particularly the tap room, which, you know, was enabled by changes in state laws, uh, but also kind of rethinking what a brewery was, you know, really enabled a lot more breweries than, than we could ever have before, because these are breweries that are selling, let's say, 600, 500, 600 barrels. Those who don't know what a barrel is, barrels 31 gallons, um, you know, selling that on site. And, you know, that's a drop in the bucket of the U.S. beer market, but it allows lots of businesses to thrive. If you can do that, if you can get those margins, if you can get the support of your local community. And, and so that's the biggest shift. And you know, the stat I always love to pull out is 75% of the breweries in the country make a thousand barrels or less. And if you add all those breweries together, collectively, they still make less than one out of 200 beers in the United States. Wow. So that's how we get so many breweries is you have a ton of breweries that really in the grand scheme of things don't make very much beer, but are able to thrive on their local market on, you know, having a, a strong customer base in their town. And, and there's probably, frankly, still room for growth, you know, because there are cities and towns in the U.S. that have a population to support one of those that don't have one yet. Absolutely. So in aggregate, for some context and perspective, um, well, at first, maybe we should back up and, and cover a little bit of, of nomenclature for people who may not be familiar. So um, what are your what are the definitions that, that the Brewers Association uses um, to describe a brewery based on the amount of beer that they make per year? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, we use kind of three or four categories. Um, so we have tap rooms and brew pubs. Those are breweries that are primarily on site. We use a threshold of 25% of volume sold on site. But that's at the point at which revenue is typically then majority on site for those breweries. Tap rooms don't have food. Brew pubs have food. That's kind of the distinction there. Um, and then we call small production breweries microbreweries. So, you know, anybody who's, who is in packaging and distribution but hasn't really achieved much scale yet. And then we use a 15,000 barrel threshold. That's typically a point where the business model starts changing, where distribution is now really key and central where you're going to be more heavily in package. Um, and we start calling those regional craft breweries. Okay. Okay. Um, so above those, uh, I know that there's, there's sort of federal nomenclature for what the difference between a, a microbrewer is and a, and, a, and a brewer, as they say. Um, but I guess for, 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 for this perspective in aggregate, um, everyone who is not let's say, um, you know, Miller Coors uh, or one of these, you know, multinational breweries. Um, so craft brewers specifically in the United States. And we can include even Sam Adams or, or however you're comfortable doing it. Yep. What percentage of beer consumed in the United States, more or less, is made by those breweries as opposed to larger breweries? Uh, we just released these stats, so I know them very, very well. 13.1%. So about, about, about one out of eight beers. Um, okay. And that's, you know, again, a you know, a collection of 9,000 breweries. So you know, even with this explosion of breweries, I mean, you're right that we haven't seen that hugely shift the beer market in the United States. Right. So, you know, the top three companies still sell 70% of, of the beer in the United States. 
And, and you have this collective long tail of, you know, 9,000 breweries who collectively sell, you know, 13%. So that shows you how skewed we still are, that you can have all these breweries, but they're still making, you know, very, very small amounts of beer. As I often like to say, small breweries are small. Small breweries are small. Yeah. So in, 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 in microcosm or, or in a smaller uh, context in Michigan, uh, of course, where we are, um, you know, Old Nation is, I think, the number fourth or, or fifth in terms of volume here in, here in Michigan which is a completely distracting and misleading statistic, right? Um, because Old Nation is making something like 20, 25,000 barrels a year. And uh, it feels like a lot, right? We've been around for five or six years. Um, but for some context, even just here in this state, we of course have Bells and Founders uh, in the numbers one and two spot uh, who are making something like three, four, even up to upwards of 500,000 barrels a year. Um, so the drop-off is, is, is intense. And really from the number one and two spot to the number three spot, we're talking about, um, you know, an, an order of magnitude, right? Yeah. Um, so is, first of all, uh, breweries like Founders and Bells, of course, are not so common. Uh, they're not in every state, but there are many of them. Um, and I wonder, I've seen sort of that model of business change with the, with the rapid growth. And when I say rapid, I mean over 15, 20 years um, of breweries that size. Their model has changed. Um, and then the model of other smaller production brewery, uh, brewing companies commensurately changes as competition shifts in the state. Um, I wonder, how, in that sort of 100,000 barrel and over category, um, do you have any sense for how many breweries in the U.S. are, are, are there? Um, probably get the exact number wrong, but you know, we're talking 20 to 25 breweries, yeah. uh, that, that are kind of in that range. You know, there's about, there's about 50 breweries that are 50,000 barrels or more. And it's probably about half that, that if you, if you get to that kind of, you know, hundred thousand plus, and, and that really is, you know, again, kind of, you know, we stop regional at 15 and kind of lump everybody above that. But I mean, you know, somewhere around 60 or hundred, there's clearly another jump in, in what those companies look like, you know, the importance of chain grocery, for example, to their business model. Um, and, and, you know, I know it's a podcast, so people can't, you know, see the hand motions I'm making, but I mean, you know, it, it's really incredible kind of how long that long tail is and then how steep the rise is to up to the breweries. So, you know, to use your, you know, 20,000 barrels, you know, in the context of the U S beer market, that's, let's see if I can get my, my numbers, right. That's 0.01% of the U S beer market, though that probably puts you in the top 200 breweries in the United States you know, right. at, at, at that level. So you know, it's a really steep curve and, and the volumes that those people who are on the top of that curve are making are just much, much larger than, you know, scale wise than, than any of these small breweries. From a brewery, so I, for a little bit of context on where I'm coming from, I'm, I'm intimidated by talking to you about economic uh, issues and the issues even particularly that impact brewing. But my, my background is, is specifically as a, a, a brewer. So I went to school at the Technical University in Berlin and the VLB um 20 years ago and then came back here and have been working in craft breweries in michigan and, and elsewhere since then um but the 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 perspective that i so this is 2001 to well 2002 2003 the perspective that i had when i came back from europe uh, into the united states um was a european one right where regional breweries meant you know some million hectoliters yeah. um and larger breweries were again orders of magnitude about that um, and there, there were sort of ref, get what they call Gasthaus uh, restaurant type breweries um, that were there, but but they were really inconsequential in terms of how people thought about beer and 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 the, and the culture of beer, frankly. 
And so when I came back here to the U.S. and saw the impact that uh, craft brewers were making, not necessarily on the volume of beer sold or trading volume of beer uh, here in the United States, but how impactfully uh, they were affecting the culture of beer and the way that people thought about it here. Um, I, this, this is not a this is not a question that revolves around numbers, but I wonder if you have a sense for what it seems. Let me let me rephrase this and not ask a question. It seems to me like uh, craft brewers here make a much more outsized impact. Still, you know, 25, 30 years into the real craft beer revolution. Uh, on the way that people think about and talk about beer, then the statistics that you just talked about would indicate. Does that make sense? I would agree with that. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we could find some other statistics that that point to that as well. You know, uh, I mean, dollar sales is one. I mean, the outsized dollar sales. But, but you know, just kind of, you know, share of mind or, you know, untapped check-ins or, you know, what, whatever you want. I mean, clearly, you know, craft brewers are doing that. And, and it's a very different model than, you know, Europe where, I mean, you're right. I mean, a lot of European countries, you have, you know, kind of more of those regional companies that really kind of dominate in the region, but they all kind of look the same, right? You know, right. they're marketed and branded around their region, but they're very similar companies in many ways. Whereas, Absolutely. you know, here we have just, you know, this this huge wild diversity of of what companies look like. And, you know, I bet you, you know, it'd be a fun project. Like what's the number four brewery look like in every state? Right. And they would just, they would look totally different, you yes. know, in, in terms of what they made and what their size is and what their business model is. And, right. um, you know, I think craft breweries, you know, have been, that's part of been part of their success is they've been a cultural phenomenon as much as a business phenomenon. Um, and that they've really shifted conversations around, around beer, around beer distribution, around, around lots of things around flavors. I mean, beverage alcohol more broadly, I think is, is having a very interesting kind of time and conversation around this too, you know, that we're seeing blurring lines between categories and, you know, this kind of fourth category of things that are in cans, but aren't beer emerging, but, yeah, craft brewers have played a, a huge part in that. And, and it's not just in the U.S. too. I mean, you go globally and you see the influence of, I mean, craft brewers in, in lots of parts of the world now are making hazy IPAs with American hops. You know, as a as an anecdote, I, I went to, I got to go to the Czech Republic a couple of years ago to go to a conference and, and went to a really cool uh, festival. And basically every Czech brewer there was pouring a some kind of, you know, classic Czech lager at, you know, one of the, the strengths that they do. And their second beer was often an American hazy IPA, you know, a New England IPA. And it's like, what a weird, what a weird beer world we're in now that, you know, people are making these incredibly traditional styles to their country. And, and then you see the influence of, of American brewing there as well. It's, it, it, it's, 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 it, it has been a wild thing to watch. There's no doubt about it. I think um, when we talk about, uh, when we, when we talk about the difference in uh, business models between a larger brewery and, uh, and a smaller brewery, even if we're talking about the difference between, again, um, and AB and uh, Bells, for example, which are both, from my perspective, unimaginably large. Um, when we talk about the goals of those companies in terms of uh, sales per year, sales growth, um, the way that they attack, uh, for example, the introduction of a new product, um, those are becoming more similar than they were, of course, because these uh, larger breweries like uh, Bells or New Belgium um, are, you know, they have marketing budgets and marketing departments now, but certainly, um, their model is not the same as an AB, uh, model, uh, in terms of, in terms of releasing a beer, what they need a beer to do when they put it out of the market. Yeah. So I wonder, um, for context, what, 
let's let's use this as an example. If uh, and I believe again, I was listening to one of your one of your podcasts uh, last last night, um, and you were there with Paul Gatza, um, who I believe is the d- director of the Brewers Association, yep. um, and you were giving a presentation about uh, I think these were twenty seventeen numbers. Um, you were giving a, an example of uh, domestic beer having dropped two percent and craft beer having raised six percent. And um, I, I guess I, I just want to kind of narrow in on what those numbers actually mean in terms, again, of, of barrels or gallons of beer sold, because it seems like, you know, domestic beer didn't, didn't lose that much. But of course, they don't want to lose any. Um, and it's six percent. That's three times, right? The, the, the growth that uh, uh, craft beer uh, experienced. But what does that really look like in terms of barrels of beer? Yeah. So, so back then, I don't know what the exact number would have been, but let's say, you know, domestic beer is 150, 160 million barrels. So, you know, so at, at, at 2%, you're talking about a, you know, a, a 3 million barrel drop. Um, and, you know, at, at 6% rise for, for craft, uh, you know, 20 million barrels, let's say, right. you know, I mean, you're, you're talking about, you know, 600,000, or uh, I guess it'd be twice that. So it's not 3%, 6%, uh, you know, 1.2 million barrel rise. So, so that domestic drop, even at a lower percent is, is much higher than, um, than the craft beer number, um, you know, because the, the relative size of the, of the categories are so different. And, you know, I know you didn't ask me a question about the kind of different business models, but it, I mean, I think it points to just the different scale that those businesses yes. exist on, yes. you know, uh, you know, a, a Bell's can release a new seasonal or a line extension that, you know, moves their volume, you know, five or 10,000 barrels. And it can be locally focused too, right? They can release a Michigan only beer and, and sure. that can move a needle for their company. You right. know, if they do something with all Michigan hops or, or something, um, you know, Anheuser-Busch InBev, you know, I mean, yes, they're looking at their U.S. numbers too, but I mean, they're a global company and, and things that, that move their number, you know, just need to be a, a order of magnitude bigger. And, you know, I mean, that's why sometimes you see the big companies, I mean, they'll discontinue brands that would be larger than, you know, many breweries because it's just not worth the time and effort for them to, to do these kind of little tiny things. They, they need things that are going to scale, that are going to be able to go wide and, you know, that they can give to every distributor in the country. And if it's going to be a niche product, but there's some exceptions, right? We do see, you know, Coors has their, you know, AC Golden Line and, you know, some of the beers they sell here, Colorado Native, they only sell in Colorado. But right. with a few exceptions, I mean, they want things that are wide and scale. Whereas one of the cool things about small brewers and one reason they can be so innovative is they can do these tiny little small bets. And for a company their size, that moves the needle. Um, and yes. so it's worth doing. Yeah. So all of that is fascinating. But I think a stopping point for me, I think when you were comparing, when you're comparing the, uh, the percent rises and drops, it sounded like you had had essentially said that the a two percent drop in this in these kind of made up numbers, but a two percent drop for domestic beer represents a hundred and fifty percent of the beer produced by craft brewers in aggregate. Is that right? Uh, not not a two percent drop in in aggregate. So it, uh, um, those numbers were um, kind of the both the changes. So a two percent a two percent drop. I, 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 Sorry. For craft beer would be more than 10% of aggregate though of craft. So, um, and I mean, and that's honestly a lot of where craft came from, you know, Jim right. Cook always liked to use the the leaky bucket as his metaphor that, you know, we had this bucket f- filled with, you know, domestic and lager and domestic light lager, and it was leaking, you know, that those drinkers were going away and, and they were looking for something else. And, and, you know, his, his description of what Boston beer has always tried to do is we've tried to put little, you know, thimbles underneath all these leaks 
Um, and, and craft beer is, you know, arguably over the past two decades been, you know, bigger than a thimble. It's been the biggest place of catching those leaks that this volume is flowing out of the large brewers and it's, it's flown into, um, you know, small brewers as, as people look for, for more variety, for more flavor, for more innovation as, you know, as they look for a different beer experience. So this, um, this raises a, a thought that we've had um, here at Old Nation, and I know a lot of brewers are talking about this, particularly older or brewers that have been around for a long time like me. Um, we saw, we, it felt like what we saw uh, over the pandemic was a return, not a complete return, but a tendency toward, um, a, a tendency for the customer to buy core brands of breweries they knew and trusted more than the experimental kind of purchasing that they were engaging in uh, in years previous. Um, that's a, that's just a sense that we got. Our flagship survived and did very, very well over the pandemic. I know other Michigan breweries had the same experience. Um, is that Does that resonate with you? And is that something that you, you've seen and, and tried to quantify at all? I have tried to quantify. I mean, I, I did some analysis and scan of brand size and didn't really find too much evidence. Okay. For this, you know, what I think is going on that kind of can kind of line those two things is that, you know, we certainly saw shopping patterns just dramatically change during, during the pandemic. And, um, you know, a lot of innovation, a lot of niche brands, for example, come from on-premise and on-premise just got crushed. And, yeah. you know, you know, people stopped, stopped drinking that way. And, and the way people shopped as well is, you know, they, they ran into the grocery store and they got through as quickly as possible, you know, especially in the first kind of six months of the pandemic where we, nobody knows what the hell is going on. And, right. um, you know, we're all figuring it out. And, and I think that led to, I don't know, I, I think my read, this is me personally, is that, you know, people kind of over psychologicalized that to, you know, mean that, oh, people are returning to the familiar as opposed to just like, no, they, they just want to get in and out of the grocery store. And so they're just grabbing stuff and, and, you know, sometimes that meant, you know, core brands, you know, kind of did better. But some of that is just because those core brands are in broader distribution, you know, that they're easier to find, like that they're right. sold in those grocery stores and you didn't do the extra stop to the liquor store. Um, right. So I guess, you know, I, I'm maybe saying I agree with you in terms of like the numbers and, and sales, but I think the rationale behind it to me was just a difference in shopping and that it, sure. it wasn't any different in what people wanted. It was where they were going to buy beer and what was available there. Well, in larger format packaging, right? If you're if you're going into the yeah. store less often than you were, then you're going to tend to buy a 12 pack or a case instead of a six pack, and that's bigger breweries and that's generally their core brands. Is what, is yep. What and and we saw 12 packs pick up share you know, almost immediately during the pandemic. Right. 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 Well, it's um, the difference. I think uh, focusing, you know, less, I guess, on domestic and more specifically on on distributing craft brewers here in the United States. Um, when you had uh, when you had mentioned it would be interesting to do a survey of say the fourth largest brewery in every state that would be interesting that would be phenomenally interesting um and you know we uh, for example our brewery we're in uh, 20 states now um and uh of course everyone is completely different um for a number of reasons of course liquor control commissions in each state influence uh how you can enter that state and how you can release new products in some cases and there are a number of variables but um one thing that was interesting to me um in a conversation with our colorado distributor uh which is crooked Stave, um nice. we were doing uh our abp our annual business planning meeting with them and talking about setting goals and, and what we would expect in the Colorado market using metrics that we use for every state, which we feel like are inaccurate, but useful to us, at least as a starting point. Um, 
and again, we're talking about, you know, the competition in Colorado. It's always been high. Um, the beer drinker in Colorado, I think, is more mature than in a lot of other states in terms of what it is that they want. Um, uh, but one thing that I'd never considered, and this is just me being, you know, stupid about it, but one thing I'd never considered is the population size of Colorado, which I completely overestimated, right? Um, the distributor, what, uh, what Jim had said was, you know, look, you're used to selling in, you know, Detroit and Chicago and, and, and cities like that, you know, Pittsburgh. And uh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, but what you have to understand is that the population of Colorado is about the same as the population of Chicago, right? Um, and and it's, it's things like that, that I think brewers prop like myself, I should have uh, spent more time figuring that out before I entered those markets, right? Because you think of Colorado and beer and you think, well, everyone in Colorado drinks craft beer. Denver's huge. Everybody talks about how great Colorado is. Let's go to Colorado, right? Um, with no more consideration than that. I think it happens relatively often. Um, so I wonder if in your research, you've identified pocket beer markets like Colorado. Um, Florida is another interesting example with some 26 million people, but a craft beer culture and rate of consumption that's unusual to me. Um, I'm not asking a question here, but I guess I'm wondering if any of this kind of resonates with you and if there's anything you've noticed in the numbers that that explains the differences between states over and above population, I guess. Yeah, there certainly are things, um, you know, and I mean, you, you see huge variations here. I mean, you know, one extreme is, you know, Vermont, sure, where, yes. which, you know, just like, you know, has a ridiculous number of breweries, you know, per capita and and, and can just support a beer culture that, you know, it's kind of insane to, to, to think about. Another end, you know, it's probably some of the southeastern states, you know, the Alabama, the Alabama beer market's gotten a lot better and they get more breweries. And Mississippi, the same way, you know, it's really been kind of very low, but actually starting to move up a little bit. Um, you know, so there certainly are, are cultural factors. And, and honestly, for many breweries, it's even more fine grained than that. You know, you look at a, a state like, you know, Colorado and the, the front range is going to be a totally different market than the yes. Western Slope. Yeah. Michigan, you know, um, you know, the, the Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, you know, kind of, you know, Western part of the state, totally different market than, you know, Detroit or, um, and, and, you know, that's one of the things that makes it hard to expand the distribution and craft. Well, you, thank you. That's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Yes. That's, you know, you got to know these, these markets, you're going to have different competitors. You're going to have, you know, just, there's lots going on, but but also one of the things that makes it cool because you know you get you get variations in the breweries and the beers that are that are born from this market and you know one of the comment I'd like to make here is that you know a lot of people are are not great at taking numbers and putting them in the kind of context that that they need. Part yes. part of my job is as much as possible to kind of break it apart and, and help people see that. And population is probably the best example. You know people people kind of assume, for example, California like California just. Oh, incredible, you know, must, you know, must have more breweries, you know, than well, it does have more breweries than any other state. Right. You look at it on a per capita basis and it's kind of middle of the pack. Um, and, and, you know, you delve within California and actually there's kind of like, you know, San Diego is, would be like a leading state. Central right. Valley basically has zero breweries. Um, you know, Northern California where nobody lives, um, <coughs> above San Francisco again, like kind of a, a little bit more of a, a beer wasteland. So you know, huge variations here that you you really often have to break these things apart to, to understand them, to understand these markets. And um, I think, you know, it's one of many challenges why we've seen, you know, brewers be much more cautious than they used to be about just going national. 
because right. understanding these things, understanding the economics of it, you know, Colorado doesn't have a lot of people into big states. So just moving stuff around is going to cost more money than, than in some places in the yes. East coast. Um, but you know, the, those, those are kind of nuances that are really hard if you're not in those markets to understand. And um, I don't know, like, you know, I can do anything to fully prepare brewers, but hopefully I can, I can get them thinking about some of that stuff and, um, you know, be a little bit more prepared when they hit the ground and have those oh shit moments. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I wonder if, um, if, if you care to kind of talk about the, so when, when we talk about, um, the way, uh, let me, let me rephrase. When I came into the beer market in the early 2000s and for some time thereafter, maybe 10 years, um, it was enough to make good beer and have a brewery, right? Um, you could, I mean, you could rise to some level of success. And as long as your business practices were relatively sound and you handled your company financially uh, responsibly, uh, you could, you know, certainly make a living for 10 or 15 years and, and or more. Um, and grow your brewery and be fine. And I think a lot of the legacy breweries, craft breweries that are still around um, are an example of that. Not to say they haven't been innovative, not to say they haven't made great beer, um, but really it was kind of first in wins uh, type uh, situation, I think. And that is no longer true. I think it's much, much more difficult. I, and again, I emphasize, I think, please correct me, this is, this is what we're doing. Um, but I, I think it is more difficult to compete um, particularly with a distribution model now, uh, more difficult. There's a lot more barriers to entry, it seems like, both financially and in terms of, uh, you know, marketing and, and, and grabbing folks' attention. Um, and social media, therefore, I think has come into play a lot more than it did before as a marketing tool that is available to everyone and essentially cost-free. Is there, is there any part of what you've been looking at that talks about that effect uh, so th these are two two separate questions, I suppose. Um, the effect of social media on smaller breweries in their growth in the last, let's say, five years. Um, and then also, do you have any insight or could you get any insight about um, different barriers to entry and difficulty, particularly in production and distribution to distributing breweries, uh, again, in the last five years compared to maybe the 10 years before? Yeah, maybe I'll start with that second part and and just say... I mean, it's clearly a more competitive market than it was, you know, and, and we could come up with metrics to show this, you know, one I I've looked at occasionally, and I think shown in some of my presentations is amount of growth divided by the number of breweries Yes, that, you know, even in a year now where we get a million, two million barrels of growth, you divide that by the number of breweries and the amount of growth per brewery that is, is, is very, very small. Right. Um, whereas, you know, back in the day, yeah, we're only growing 500,000 barrels, but there's only a thousand breweries in the country. So, you know, everybody per brewery is, is growing pretty decently. Um, I mean, that's one place to start. And I think that's shifted how breweries need to operate, right? When, when you're going into a new market and there's only two breweries there, that just means a different plan than when you're going in and there's already 50, you know, market tested companies that are there and ready to, to compete in that marketplace. Um, and, you know, that means different things for companies. You know, I mean, these are kind of like the, I mean, I'm sure there's a business school class where they talk exactly about this. You know, when you get more competitive markets, you have to have more product differentiation. You have to market more. You have to brand better. Sure. That, you know, just kind of that. I mean, I think you said it great. Like making good beer used to be what you needed to do. Now you need to make good beer plus. You right. got to you gotta find out what your niche in the market is, how you're going to stand out, how you're going to tell the customer about that, how you're going to get it to market. Um, and that, that leads to the second part that, you know, that there are tools that help brewers do this more effectively. Than before, you know, the digital re revolution and social media have given us lots of kind of 
free, easy things that would have taken, you know, people and companies to do before. And now you can, you know, do for, for free on your phone in two seconds. Um, and, and to me, I, I think the main thing that's done is it's really given wind of the sales to something we already talked about, which is these really small local niche breweries. You know, I'm not sure social media changes the game that much for um, distributed breweries. It's, you know, it's another intern to pay or, you know, something to, to think about, but you know, for the small breweries, I mean, that's, that's the way they get out there. You know, you, how do you learn about the new brewery in your community? It's, it's Facebook, it's Yelp, it's Twitter, it's, you know, untapped. It's, you know, it's these things that are, that are free and, and they can be on and, you know, people searching are going to find them and then allow them to directly control their message and communicate with their fans. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that, that didn't exist in the past. It was word of mouth. It was much harder, or maybe you took an ad out in the local paper. Festivals. Um, Festivals, yes, another good good example, you know, kind of pre-social media age. But, um, you know, I think it's made it much easier for people to kind of pop on the scene and find those little niches. At the same time, you know, so we've got this dichotomy to kind of wrap this up where it's easier than ever before to get in. The barriers to entry at a kind of small scale, I think, are, are very, very low. Yes. The barriers to entry that next level up are getting harder and harder and harder. And, and a lot of this has to do with distribution, too. Distributors only want so many brands. Retailers only want so many brands. And so anybody can start a brewery, but taking it to that next level where you're getting beer out in the marketplace, where it's getting further away from your brewery, that's getting harder and harder and harder. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. Yeah, I think that may be, I think that may be a good thing. I mean, I think that may be just a function of a maturing market ultimately. And, and as you say, a function of competition. But within that idea of competition, and the reason, frankly, that, I'm, that I bring up social media is I, I, I feel as though, this is not completely different than craft beer has ever been, but I do feel as though with the advent of social media, and particularly apps like Untapped, which is, a, for folks that don't know, a beer rating uh, app, um, the impetus to, one of the, as a brewer, one of the words I despise the most in craft brewing is innovation, right? Uh, because folks' idea of what innovation is, is is completely subjective and they differentiate all the time, right? Um, so if innovation is, for example, and I'm not trying to get on a soap, soapbox here, I'm just trying to give a little context. If innovation for one brewery is an imperial stout with, uh, you know, marshmallows and graham crackers, and innovation for another brewery, for example, is going back to historical styles and re-examining those styles. Um, when you speak to particularly salespeople and distributors, whatever their idea of innovation is, is generally whatever you need to do to make noise and sell beer, right? So what I've seen over the course, and I've done it, and my, my biggest beer is a New England IPA. I'm a lager brewer, right? Um, what I've seen is brewers thinking less, and again, I, this is not really a question for you necessarily, but uh, thinking less about uh, sort of fundamentals and, and, and models of training for new brewers and, and practical applications of older techniques and more about whatever makes the biggest noise. And what I've seen that become, or what I've, my sense for what that's become is less sort of dependable flagship brands. And, and again, these are for breweries at, at my level or, or less, less dependable flagship brands and more just a kind of rush to grab people's attentions and, and sort of recycling old ideas and packaging them new. And I, I don't know how healthy that is for, for, for beer generally. I don't know what it communicates to the consumer. Um, and, and I don't know what that means for longevity of craft beer Generally, of course, it's not the only thing happening, and I'm not trying to chicken little this idea with you, 
Um, but I wonder if that sort of cycling, that rapid cycle through brands is something that you can see in any of the numbers that you look at. And if that looks different than, let's say, 10 years ago to you. I mean, I think one one reason it looks different is there's just more brands to cycle. You right. know, there was there was brand cycling 10 years ago, but there just weren't as many brands. So it didn't seem like as big a deal when when 9000 breweries are cycling 20 brands. I mean, the, the total brand cycle is just insane as a, you know, a, as a total number. Um, you, I mean, I think what this speaks to is is the need to differentiate. You know, you need to differentiate and you can do that. You can do that with your beer. You can sure. do that with your marketing. Yep. You can do that. You know, you can do that in a variety of ways. And and, you know, some brewers have chosen to do that in a way that is. We're going to be the, the brewer that's always doing something new and audacious. And, you know, I mean, that can work for some companies. You know, some companies like that. I think we've, we, we see companies who, who start down that route and realize how exhausting it is to keep that up as a sustainable practice. Um, and so, you know, to really get to a place where craft companies, not just the category, are going to have longevity. I, th I think, you know, companies have to think about how sustainable whatever strategy they are adopting is. And... You know, I mean, the, the beer biz, you know, is, has long been one where if you don't have some brands that you're kind of core and building, um, it's going to be it's going to be challenging to keep getting, you know, new stuff to stick over and over and over. And you know, that should always be part of your portfolio. But I think the goal shouldn't be for that to always be your portfolio, but be doing that. So stuff sticks yes. so that it can then grow again. And when you have those hits to figure out, can I scale this? Can I take this up a little bit so that. I can I can set aside twenty percent of my volume, and it doesn't have to be on this rotating hamster wheel of new flavors all the time. Right. Um, and you know, we'll see. I mean, I think we're at a little bit of a flex point. You know, some yes. of the trends we've already talked about, where where some companies are going to figure out that distri distribution's not for them, and that you know, you I mean, you can do that innovation, right? If you're a pub, and you know, the people who come in want new stuff, and you keep the one flagship on for the the guy who always wants you know the amber lager or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> You know, but if you're going to be a distributing company, there's only so much of that you can do, you know, sustainably year over year and keep distributors, retailers, and ultimately customers. I mean, at the end of the day, what brewers think is innovation doesn't matter. What customers think is innovation is, is what matters. Um, and, and and so, you know, I, I do think we're, we're going to see some maturity. And the last thing I'll say here, too, is I see a tendency sometimes with with people to say stuff about kind of the current community that that doesn't understand how young most brewers are and that you know you know we've had so many brewers over the last five or ten years that when they're you know five or ten years older they're going to learn some of these lessons they're going to be more mature companies i think we're starting to see that churn in breweries go down um and you know i hear this from you know older regionals sometimes too you know things about you know kind of quality or and you know i always push back on them like what was your quality like when you were a second or third year brewer and, and, you know, many of them then, well, yeah, we didn't have a centrifuge then. We didn't, you know, we, we, right. we didn't do all these things. And, um, and and so I think it's easy to confuse, too, some of what's going on of, like, changes in business model with just, we've got a ton of new breweries in the country who are still figuring out their way, finding their slot in this market. And as they do, some of that hopefully will will settle down a little bit. Because I can't imagine a lot of brewers who 15, 20 years from now still want to be making 200 beers a year and, you know, and, and trying to replicate that year after year after year after year. That is phenomenally useful perspective. Thank you for that. That's oh, great. Thank you. Um, every once in a while. Yeah, every once in a while. Squirrel gets a nut. No, I, great, great. Enlightening to me, frankly. Um, I, what, I, what, what I had intended to do uh, with that line of, uh, of conversation was move into uh, something that I know John, uh, who produces a podcast, asked you about prior to it, um, which is 
I mean, essentially, he's asking about trends, right? And he's asking specifically about trends. We've covered a lot of this, so please don't don't don't, don't stress yourself about uh, expanding on it any more than you already have necessarily. But um, trends toward more traditional beers and specifically lagers, right? You live in Colorado, which seems to, in the last ten years, have become the home of traditional Central European beer brewing in the in the United States, right? What do you see there? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I always say, I'm getting this question as a media question a lot, which I love. I love that the media is thinking about craft lager. Me too. The first thing I, I try to point out is that craft has made lagers for a long time. Like, this, this isn't new. Like, you know, um, Boston Lager, Shinerbach, you know, Anchor Steam. I mean, you know, the craft category in many ways was built, you know, heavily on on lager. So, so some Absolutely. of this is just a changing of the guard, right? Who it is important for. And, and you see this in the numbers too. I mean, you know, I... I send people numbers about kind of share and they're kind of surprised that like loggers not taking more share within craft. Cause a lot of this is, you know, kind of a generational turnover. Loggers are clearly more important to small brewers or the number of small brewers where loggers are important has clearly increased, yeah. but they're often taking that share from other craft brewers, you know, uh, a local microbrewery taking it from a, you know, a, a regional or national craft brewer who, who, who's made a logger for, for 20 or 30 years. So you know, I think we're starting to see some some of that shift, and I can talk about that more in a second, that we are starting to see some of that grow. But some of this isn't new as much as kind of generational turnover. And I've been thinking about this question a lot in the last couple of days. I think part of this, too, is that we are also seeing a new generation of brewers who, who are not afraid to kind of take the lager, own it. And, you know, you go back 10 or 20 years, and you got, you know, people like Stone running, you know, fizzy yellow beers for wussies campaigns. Yeah. And, and so craft was really defined as kind of the counterpoint to those things. The anti-lager, the anti, yeah. Exactly. We don't yeah. make lagers. We make flavorful IPAs and ales. And, um, you know, despite the fact that the ales, the IPAs were growing by taking share from brown ale and red ale more than they were taking from lager. But <laughs> right. I, I, I'm diverting here a little bit. And, and no, but no. That, that's gone, right? And so now, like, there's a generation of, of craft drinkers, not just brewers, who, who don't have that as a comparison, right? Like, craft can be anything. It can be any style. And so a local company that makes you know, uh, check pills and, a, you know, whatever else, you know, merits in the fall and, you know, all these things like that's, that's cool. And that's, you know, that's trendy and, and those are delicious beers and I want to drink those and they don't have to be this kind of counterpoint of like, oh, those are things that, that big brewers will make. I also think, you know, we're, we're starting to see that show up in the metrics and show up and share. I, I, I was playing around to have access to the untapped dashboards where you can like aggregate stuff. And, you know, I mean, that's, this is not a good representation of the, of the beer market and volume. We'll say that up front, but it's a good representation of kind of like cutting edge beer geeks, the people who are most involved in this movement. And five of their six fastest growing styles, you know, in a three month rolling average are lager styles. Wow. Um, and, and I think, you know, you see again, variations here geographically. So some places, you know, IPA is still King and, and, and still big, but, um, and IPA is still King and all the numbers oh, too. Yeah. Let's, let's be honest here, yeah. you know, but this is, but, but lagers moving up. And I think it shows that there is a, a subset now of real beer geeks too, who are getting into these and, and are getting interested in them and how they're made. And I think that shows a lot of potential. So long-winded, you know, no, we haven't seen, we haven't seen the share shift as much as I think sometimes people think, but I think we're starting to see the share of mind shift. Um, okay. And that's, and that's really going to set the stage for in the long run, the biggest part of the U S beer market is still lager based, you know, loggers and light loggers still dominate the U S beer market. And so for craft brewers to get out of those kind of share numbers, we talked about at the beginning, you know, one out of eight beers, to, to move to two out of eight beers, a lot of that second beer is probably going to have to be lager because that's what the American population drinks in the vast majority of their beer occasions. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's uh, it's always interesting to me to uh, to to think about how much uh, of how much of what is uh, what is new is just old that's become new again, right? Um, and I think for the last few minutes, really certainly the last couple of questions, that's what you've you've been talking about that a lot. Um, and it's interesting from an objective perspective, which I would say as objective as is possible, you you would have. Um, that, that 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 really is true. I think the idea, and and when you mention you know the, these young folks coming in that don't where lager doesn't have the same stigma as it did to people you know maybe in my generation or, or older. Um, and by the way, you know I'm one of the old one of the oldest working brewers in Michigan, and I'm 43 years old. Right? Um, it's uh, it, it does lend perspective, and I think that's you know what was one of the most kind of insightful, well, I mean, for me, impacting things that you said um, was how young brewers really are. And, you know, when I, and again, all of this is anecdotal, um, but when I look at comments on social media or, or apps like Untapped, which really are useful, um, it really are is the people who are my age or older, so maybe Gen X to young baby boomers, um, who are saying, still saying, well, you know, I don't want to drink that that lager because, you know, that's a fizzy yellow beer and it doesn't have any character and things need, you know, more zhuzh and these brewers need to be innovative in the way that I want them to be innovative. Um, and, you know, it's something I never considered until you said this, but I don't really see younger people doing that as much. Well, there are a few, um, but the younger people are just like, oh, that's neat. I, I like this beer better, but I, I thought that was pretty good. And that's about it. It's not an insult to them when a brewer makes no, I mean, you know, and we're starting to see, I mean, you know, there's the, you know, there's slang, you know, crispy boys, and, crispy you, know, boys. you know, and stuff that, you know, I mean, points to that the young generation is developing a, a love, a language, you know, you know, their own kind of twist on lager, you know, I'm sure it's going to drive some, some older brewers crazy, you know, in the way they think about it and talk about it. But, you know, I mean, one thing that always characterizes the beverage alcohol market is, is generational shifts, right? Because we, you know, we just drink different things over time as, as we age and, and different generations, you know, drink things. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that's going to define the craft market over the next decade is, is the aging of the millennials who have been a huge key core demographic to, to craft. 100%. Um, and, and the millennials aren't young anymore. I mean, you know, <laughs> we're about the same age and we're kind of, you know, depending on how you do the cutoffs, kind of on the you know, the, the young end of, of, of Gen X. Yeah. Um, the millennials are, are right on the other side. They're, right. they're early 40s now too. Right. Um, and so you got a generation that, that grew up with craft beer that maybe doesn't have the same, you know, views about lager that they had before and is now looking for more sessionable stuff because, you know, I, I chase my daughter around in the morning after a couple of double IPAs and, you know, that's not a lot of fun, you know, whereas no. after a couple of nice pilsners, you know, I'm a little bit more, more spry in the morning to, to do my parenting. So absolutely. So, so I, I think we're going to see, we're going to see some of this just naturally occur as well as, um, you know, yes, there's still going to be a time and place for Imperial IPAs. People love those, you know, they're flavorful, but, you know, generationally, I think we're going to see, we're going to see those millennials come across. They're going to look for, for lower ABV stuff. You know, and if we're going to keep them in the beer category, I mean, that's that's going to be a place that, you know, a lot of these kind of lower ABV things, not just lagers, but, you know, Blondales, and, you know, um, low ABV sours and things like that are, are going to play well. And I think we see that in a lot of metrics that people are more interested in that than ever before. And, and we'll see what the next generation wants, but they also seem like they're a little bit more kind of ABV conscious. Um, and, and so, you know, that may be a generation too, where there's a lot of opportunities there. That's so th this then dovetails into one of the one of the last questions I, I had slated to ask you. 
Um, but of course, I'd, I'd love it if this expanded into into even more topics. And it is about young drinkers, right? And and when I say young, I guess you, I'm sure, have better metrics for this. Uh, but I, I suppose I mean somewhere in between 21 and 32 or so, right? Um, I should say 35. Um, they, you know, there's a lot of talk amongst brewers. And again, you know this because you talk to brewers a lot. Um, most of this conversation is voodoo and brewers sitting around a bar talking to each other and guessing what might be happening, right? There's really not a lot of fundamental data that they're using. Um, but, you know, they're saying, well, you know, millennials are, they want, um, you know, fruit juice infused seltzer and, and, and they would like other kinds of seltzer and they, you know, are only interested in, you know, hazy IPAs and they're not interested in West Coast IPAs. And as a person who, you know, owns a pub and exists in it quite often and is trying to stay aware of trends in the beer market, I, I don't necessarily find that to be true. I, I, what's your perspective on that? Well, the first thing I would say is any attempt to pigeonhole a generation as big and broad and diverse as the millennials into, they only want X or Y is going to be a failure. Right. There are, you know, you can pick, insert age, you know, race, ethnicity, gender here, somebody who likes everything. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so, so, you know, what we have to try to get at is, you know, you know, a kind of what, what does my demographic want? Cause the people who are coming through your door, are not ge generic millennial, right. They're a subset from a, right. a place from, um, you know, from, from a certain socioeconomic background and, and, right. you know, trying to, to make sure you're understanding, standing what they want. Um, you know, I do think, you know, we, we, we see generationally, right. People have different, different characteristics that they want. I, I think seltzer is a great example of this, that you, you, if you just describe, you know, without saying seltzer, if you describe kind of what it is, it's a lot like light beer, but with kind of a few different attributes, right. A little bit more flavor, uh, gluten-free, um, you know, just a, a few things that are, are words that I think, you know, you would associate with kind of, you know, millennials and Gen Z. Yeah. Um, so, so there are shifts, but I think we can kind of miss like it's still sessionable, it, you know, it's, you know, it's a locale sessionable kind of four to 5%. Like, I mean, in many ways, this is still kind of light beer. It's just light beer for a new generation with a few tweaks. Um, and, and so I get, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of tangenting here a little bit, but no, this is great. <laughs> you know, I, I think my point, you know, is, is, you know, a, there's lots of groups here and the millennials are a big enough generation that, you know, people are going to be able to have very successful businesses going after one particular part of them. And sure. honestly, if you're all chasing kind of the center of the millennials, you're, you're missing the outsides. We're missing opportunities to grow beer. We're missing opportunities to, to grow our demographics. Um, but also there may be commonalities that we can kind of, you know, take some lessons on and, and apply to some parts of your of, of portfolio. Um, but these lessons aren't always, you know, kind of unidirectional. I mean, I, I said aware of ABV earlier, but if you look at the data, ABV has become more important to craft drinkers at both ends of the spectrum. So people are like thinking about it much more clearly now. Like before it was, oh, you know, I don't maybe I think people thought about this before maybe, but now they're like, they're zeroing in. So right. I know this is a high ABV or a low ABV occasion. And I want a double IPA or I want a four and a half percent, something I can, you know, drink all day. Sure. And, and, you know, there are loser styles in this. I think this is one of the things that has crushed pale ale in recent years is, you know, just kind of over the longer term is that pale ale kind of sits in the middle of those. And it's like five right. and a half, six percent. Like, do I drink it when I want a big night out or do I drink it when I'm going to watch football all day? Like, I don't, I don't really know. Right. Um, and, 
And, you know, I think that's one of the things that I would say about the next generation is they're just more hyper aware of the factors that go in. Now, does that tell you what they're going to pick up on a, on a particular day? No, without knowing what occasion and, and, you know, kind of who that person is, it's very hard, but, but, you know, you could take that away to be like, well, I got to put my ABV on my packaging much more prominently because people care about this. And by the way, White Claw puts in a really big circle that's bolded in the middle of their can because they've yep. clearly done this same market research and, uh, and are aware of this. So, wow. I'm not really answering your question other than to say, like, I think there are characteristics that we can draw around, around millennials, but it's less about what they like and, and the companies that do that best. And as well as just resonating as a company for, for what those, those drinkers want, I think are going to be the ones who win because there's lots of options out there. You're never going to chase, you're never probably going to be the best at chasing all these trends. And so focusing in on kind of some, what do we do well and how can we connect that with what people want is, is going to be a much more sustainable strategy. Yeah. It's like, it's like baseball, right? Same swing every time, pick your pitch. Amen. There you go. I, I like that metaphor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that one. <laughs> Please do. Um, Bart, I, 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 I think that this, this could go on for a long time, but I find myself floundering to ask more specific questions of you, which I think would be the best use um, of your time. I, I, I want to uh, sort of take a moment here uh, at, at, the, at the end of the podcast to encourage uh, brewers who may be listening to uh, join and avail themselves of what is available from the Brewers Association. Um, I, again, certainly the technical quarter, quarterlies have saved my career, honestly, several times uh, in the last 20 years. Um, and the market research and data collection uh, and interpretation that you are doing is also, I think, invaluable as people who listen to this podcast will, it'll be easy for them to understand. So um, is there is there is there sort of anything that is happening? What's your dark horse right now? This is the last question I want to ask you. What is the thing that you, if anything, what is the thing that you see that maybe even doesn't make sense to you yet, but you have a sense that 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 something impactful is coming? I, there, there are a lot of those. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I have like I have a, like a whole set of things. That like I don't really understand what's going on here, but I want to understand more and. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, one, you know, we're talking about ABV, so maybe that's why it's top of brand. And I'm still trying to figure out how it really fits for craft brewers is non-elk, you right. know, clearly a category that it's going to grow. You know, it's not a natural one for, for some small brewers and, and it's a difficult one to pull off, right? Like you know, making is. those beers is a technical challenge that, you know, yeah. if you don't have super fancy equipment, you yeah, know, it's going to, is going to, you know, you're not going to see non-elks on tap at your, you know, local brew pub uh, very often, yeah. uh, or at least that they, that they make. Um, so that's one I'm still trying to wrap my head around. And, you know, I think the big question for me there is how big does it get? Like you got markets in Europe where it's eight to 10%. Are we going to get there in the U S anytime soon? No, probably not. Um, but you know, if it gets to 5%, that's a very different opportunity than let's say we're, we're 0.6% of the U S market right now. So, right. so, so, so that's one I'm thinking about. Um, I mean, honestly, right now, I mean, my brain is just like supply chain, supply chain, supply chain, inflation and pricing. So thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's, and that's less like, you know, kind of, there's, there's kind of less of an interesting you know, takeaway there for, for podcast listeners. But, you know, I, I think most of the most important questions for brewers for the next year are business ones. They're not Absolutely. what style they make, yep. but it's, you know, what price point do I hit where people are still going to buy my beer and my margins aren't destroyed? Um, you know, which, where are the places where I need to lock in the long-term contracts to right. build myself some security, even if that costs me more money and I got to, or you know, buy ahead on raw materials, even if that pulls down my, my cash available for, for other stuff. So, yeah. um, 
those are the things that, that I'm thinking about a lot right now and trying to get out ahead of and, and trying to figure out, frankly, how we can be helpful because those are big, complex issues that A, the BA can't, you know, we can't move an aluminum market. Um, and B, you know, it's very difficult to provide tons of advice that's going to be useful for the wide uh, variety of, uh, of breweries that exist. But I mean, that's, that's going to be a dark horse for a lot of brewery businesses. Absolutely. Uh, to get back to your question is just like, how, how able are they to navigate this really complex pricing and supply chain environment? Because at the end of the day, you know, we're a manufacturing business and, and, and those kind of business fundamentals are really going to matter for the, the health of, and success of breweries going forward. Um, 100%. Um, and I'll answer the questions of price and uh, contracts, which uh, would for, I think, breweries of my size be in terms of price, whatever you can get away with, right? You have to test the market to find out because you said markets are different. Um, and in terms of contracts, anything you use every day, do it now before it's too late. That's generally um, our advice. So. <laughs> um, so again, Bart, I thank you so much for taking your time out uh, out there in Colorado. I'm sure you could be outside where it's much more pleasant than it is here in gloomy Michigan today. Um, and I, I just uh, am, am thankful to have you on here today and uh, and hope that we cross paths sometime in the future. Uh, thanks for having me. And definitely, I would love to, uh, to meet up in the future and, sh and share some beers. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks again. And we'll, uh, we'll sign off with that. I appreciate it again. Putting your ass on the line, opening a place where, you know, you're responsible for the livelihood of, of, um, you know, a handful of people. Um, it's scary uh, to get different perspectives on work, on philosophy toward work and on the brewing industry specifically. My passion yeah. is to make something that is as perfect as I can make it, no matter what it is. Right. Man, you're super mediocre, stop being mediocre. You're built to be not mediocre. <laughs> I, so I got back to St. Louis and we sit in the meeting. I said, okay guys, what are we gonna do with the IPA? And they're like, yeah, we're probably not gonna do anything with it. They weren't drinking beer to get out of their family and to get out of their life and get out it of their just head. Part they, of it. it was part of it. Um, and I think that's what, you know, that is a huge inf information uh, to me on, on drinking. And so your first job as a brewer is to not give anyone a hangover they didn't have.